we got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Parents, when you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself. What would kids do? Dance to a giant organ played by ocean waves? Yep. Camp in floating tree houses hundreds of feet off the ground? Check. Jump in a big tub of mud on purpose? Call it rejuvenation. We don't care. Just pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. If you need help, ask your kids. Start planning at visitcalifornia.com. Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that still haunt us today. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And I'm Haley. And this week we're going to dive into the story of Bonnie and Clyde. How much do you know about Bonnie and Clyde? I don't think I know any real facts about Bonnie and Clyde. But you've heard of them. I wonder why you've heard of them. Like, it's not part of, like, history lessons in school, and it's... No, but I think there's, like, a movie, maybe, or, like, people, like... Refer to them. Refer to them as something, yeah. If you don't know who they are, their exploits captured the attention of the American press and its readership... During what is occasionally referred to as the public enemy era, between 1931 and 1934, the two were American criminals who traveled the central United States with their gang during the Great Depression. The couple was also known for robberies and reckless, mostly for reckless killings. Bonnie Parker will forever be linked with Clyde Barrow and the violent legend that they created. They became folk heroes of sorts. Although for later generations, it seems like Hollywood had a part in that. In 19, 1967, it had only been 30 years, well, 35 years since they were running around. In 1967, um, the movie of their life with Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty glamorized their exploits, you know, like made them beautiful. And I mean, they were a good looking couple, but Hollywood definitely yeah, glamorized well, that's them. That's what I know about them is that it was like, I didn't know they killed people. I thought they were just doing robberies and stuff. Oh, no, they were more known for the people that they killed than they were. In fact, their robberies, they robbed, I think, I want to say it was like 12 to 15 banks, but they really never got a lot of money. One bank robbery, they only got 80 bucks, which, I mean, is a lot more money in 1929, 1930 than it is now. Yeah. But $80, like they robbed a bank and got $80. Not even a tank of gas now. No, it's really not a tank of gas now. Hollywood glamorized them, but it didn't really hurt that people were following every article written about them. History has regulated them to the same status of Jesse James. And the press, originally sympathetic to them, didn't help with the initial interest in the pair. People wanted to believe that they were figures freed from the shackles of poverty and difficult daily lives. They rooted for them at first. And even probably some now looking back, a book written after their deaths with the help of Bonnie's mom and Clyde's sister made people believe that they were driven to a life of crime by unfair police harassment. 
But in reality, Bonnie and Clyde were responsible for the deaths of over nine law enforcement officers and four people, like four civilians. Petite and pretty Bonnie became of the most interest. She learned to shoot a gun. And this is really funny. Um, I wrote that she favored smoking black cigar- cigars, just basically from the pictures that I've seen. But apparently she didn't love to smoke cigars. She only did that for like photos. But she was kind of wild, I think. She ultimately died with a man that she loved and people romanticized that to a point. I think after the initial shock of everything they had done and people looking back at their stories, I think people romanticized it again, if that makes sense. Like they originally romanticized them because they were like poor and they were stealing from banks that had all kinds of money. So people like, and they were a couple, they were a male, female couple. They had never seen that before. Yeah. So people romanticized that. And then when the dot, they, when they finally were caught and ambushed and all that stuff, people were totally against them. But I think then later years, you know, 35 years later, the movie comes out and people romanticize them again. Yeah. Cause what am I, perception was always just like this man and woman that were sticking it to the man like yeah. <laughs> they were killing people no they were totally <laughs> they were definitely killing people bonnie was born bonnie elizabeth parker in 1910 to parents charles robert parker a bricklayer and mother emma parker when charles was alive the family lived a comfortable life but unfortunately when bonnie was four years old her dad died due to a construction accident which i'm not even sure how he died one thing said a construction accident one said an illness, so I really, really don't hold me to that. Her mother, Emma, moved her family to Cement City, a suburb of Dallas, with her mother, and struggled to make ends meet. Obviously, a single mom with, I think she had three kids at the time. In high school, Bonnie met Roy Thornton. So in love that they were, they dropped out of school. And that's really sad that they dropped out of school. Well, Bonnie was in school. She was an honor student, and she quit school, which, I mean... They, it, the, when I describe that they were considered poor, they were all very poor, the Barrow family and the Parco family. And it was more normal for people to drop out of school and go to work and stuff. But she dropped out of school six days before she turned 16. One reference said that Bonnie got a tattoo of Roy's name on her thigh, which in it was so uncommon for women to get tattoos. The most mostly tattoos were done... Um, on criminals and sailors is what they always say. So it's really odd that a girl at the age of 16 would get it. Well, I mean, now you can't even do that, right? I mean, not unless you're in someone's garage. <laughs> but I mean, can you get a tattoo at 16 if your not parents allow you? I don't know. I don't know. I thought you could. I thought something like, which is so weird that your parents have control over that. But at 16, I get not making the decision. But it seems weird that you can make the decision. Your parents can say yes or no. Yeah. Like, that seems weird. The pairing didn't last long, though. Roy was a wanderer who um, had a ton of brushes with the law. They never divorced, but when he was convicted and sentenced in 1929 for five years for bank robbery, they never saw each other again. When they told him of her death, he commented, this is what he said, I'm glad they jumped out when they did. It's much better than being caught. I was like, their mentality. That's how bad the prisons were. I mean, not that prisons are great now, but... That's how bad they were then. She wore her wedding ring until the day she died, which I've always been a little confused about. She was so madly in love with Clyde Barrow. Why did she wear never take off Roy's wedding ring? Mm-hmm. And why did Clyde, like, wouldn't he have, like, not liked her wearing someone else's wedding ring? 
Unless they were both fine with it because it looked like she was married to him. Yeah. I don't know. That seems weird. And he stole so much shit. Like, he was always stealing something. Why didn't he steal a freaking wedding ring and give it to her? I don't get it. After she left Thornton, Bonnie moved back in with her mother and worked as a waitress in Dallas. And a side note to that, one of her regular customers when she worked there was postal worker named Ted Hinton. He was a postal worker then when she met him. But in 1932, he joined the Dallas County Sheriff's Department and eventually served as a member of the posse that ambushed Bonnie and Clyde. Like, he was friendly with her when she worked at the diner, and then he ended up being part of the ambush that ended Bonnie and Clyde. For several months in 1929, Bonnie worked at another cafe in Dallas where she confided in patrons that she wanted a career in acting, singing, or writing, writing poetry. Clyde Chestnut Barrow, often referred to as champion, and now I, I want to make a point of this. Some things say his middle name was champion. Other things say his middle name was Chestnut, which is weird. Why would his middle name be Chestnut? Why would it be Champion? <laughs> like, both are weird. I guess I got caught on the Chestnut thing. I went through, like, all the ancestry stuff, too, and everything said Clyde Chestnut Barrow. On, um, like, newspaper articles and stuff, they said Clyde Champion Barrow. So I don't really know. Well, sometimes accurate. if you're a quote-unquote street name or whatever... They'll put it that looks like it's a middle name. I guess. I guess. I'm just so confused at which one it really is because both of them are odd. I still think Chestnut is weirder than Champion. I think Champion's way weirder than Chestnut. What? As Ch- a legal middle name. Okay, Chestnut as a legal I middle don't name? No, it was a long time ago. It's weird. He was born in 1909 into a poor farming family in Ellis County, Texas, southeast of Dallas. He was the fifth of seven children born to Henry. Well, I mean, his middle name is Basil. So his middle name was Chestnut. Probably. (laughs) He was born to Henry Basil Barrow, and then the mom's name, Kumi Talitha Walker. Yeah, was that passed down through generations? Her first name was literally C-U-M-I-E, Kumi. The family relocated to Dallas in the early 1920s as part of the widespread migration from rural areas to urban centers, specifically the impoverished West Dallas area. During their initial months in West Dallas, the Barrows resorted to living under a wagon until they could afford a tent. That's how poor they were. Like, there were areas, I mean, like we talk about now, we live in California, so we have a, a homeless issue. We have a, so many homeless encampments. But back then, they were the equivalent of a homeless encampment, and they lived in either tents or, like, wagons, like, turned on their side to make walls. It was, and, and they were families. It was all families. I mean, there were kids running around. They would have fires and trash cans and stuff to keep that. It was, it, it was a Great Depression. And I don't think that we, we have a little idea of it when we see, like, homeless encampments on the freeway and stuff. But we don't. It, it, our generations are never don't understand the level of people literally living in open fields, like whole entire families. And so that's where they came from. That's where Bonnie and Clyde both came from. Henry Barrow ultimately built a home and added a filling station to the front of it, which by the way, um, I, the house was still standing until 1922 when the owners of the property demolished it. And I don't know how I feel about it. Clyde technically lit, didn't never lived in the house that was attached to the filling station, but he did live in that house when it was located somewhere else because the dad had built the house. So he lived there and then he moved the house to a different corner and then added a filling station in front of it. 
So Clyde lived in the home, but not in that location. What's a filling station? It's gas? a gas station. I'm calling it a fuzz. I'm wondering if you were going to ask about that. In those days, they called them filling stations. They didn't call them gas stations, but they were gas stations. And, I mean, gas was super cheap. You got a tank of gas for 25 cents. So just any regular person could just open a gas station? Yeah. That's wild. Well, I know now they're all owned by corporations. but Well, gas stations are now still owned by individuals. Yeah, but not the gas. Like to no. open just I mean, you still had to get the gas car. from somewhere else. To, I guess. I don't know. It seems weird. And I'm conflicted because the, the owner did tear the whole building down. And this is what my com- my conflict is. The city started the process of making it a historical landmark in 2020, which would prohibit the owner from tearing it down, obviously, if it was a historical landmark. But COVID hit. And then no one knows what happened in the process. No one knows if they just dropped the ball, if they never finished it. But it really, it never got designated as a historical landmark. The owner said it shouldn't be preserved anyways. That Clyde was a murderer and nothing about the home that he lived in is worth preserving. Like, why would we preserve the house that he technically lived in, but not in that location? But why would they make a big deal about a house where a murderer lived? Right. They should have torn it down. So, I mean, I agree in that part because I think people, again, romanticize Bonnie and Clyde and still use their names today and don't realize all the things that they had actually done. But in reality, he was a murderer. So should his house have been preserved? The other side of that is it's we can't deny our history. We can't deny the people who created the history. We can't deny the things that happened. So I have a problem with it being torn down for that reason solely because it it was a it, it's the place where his family lived. I mean, and they lived there after Clyde went to jail. The mom ended up getting shot in front of the filling station in like 1935 or something. Someone tried to bomb it afterwards. So because of Clyde, most likely because of Clyde, it was someone. It, they, someone went to prison for the the shooting of the mom. But yeah, I'm sure it was associated. They were. A, they committed crimes. The people they didn't have. I could they had see enemies. preserving it for the filling station, like that. That's like how the one that's in orange. Right. I was, gonna, I was just going to remind you that that's called the filling yeah. station because it was like called I the filling station. I could see preserving it for like filling stations being a part of history. It doesn't necessarily need to be because it was his house. But that's why they would have preserved it because any other filling station would have been torn down. I mean, honestly, we know of one still standing filling station. Between what? Orange County, Riverside County, San Diego County. We know of one that's yeah. still standing. And and that's only because someone had the foresight to turn it into a restaurant. And they also did it because it was part of a historical neighborhood. Yeah. So I don't think they would have preserved it as a filling station. Because any of them would have been torn down 100 years ago. Like, you know what I mean? Not, But it was still standing until 1922. There could, there's probably not a lot of historical landmarks in that particular area. So why not just leave it? Why not have this? I don't know. I'm so conflicted. Yeah. Because I do agree that he was a murderer and shouldn't be glorified by keeping the house that he lived in or the family lived in. But I also still think that we should be preserving some parts. Or it's weird. I'm curious what other people think. Should they have tried to preserve the, the house as a landmark or should they, was it good? Was it right to tear it down? I don't know. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. 
The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. We got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. And just can't Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Barrow's first encounter with the law occurred in late 1926. He was only 17 years old. He was apprehended after attempting to evade police because he didn't return a rented car. They had car rentals even back then. After that, he had a second arrest um, with his brother, Buck, for the possession of stolen turkeys. They had, they had stolen a bunch of turkeys with the plan to sell them to people. Like live turkeys? Yeah. Again, things that you're not going to relate to in no. today's day and age. I say that like I relate to it. I don't relate to it either. But the thing is, is they were drastically poor. They were stealing food to sell us food. Does that make You know what I'm saying? Like, these are not people that were stealing or committing crimes because they were For a sociopath or, yeah, or just bad kids on a wild spree. They were doing it because they didn't have anything. So... During the years of 1927 and 1929, Clyde had sporadic legitimate employment. He was also, but on the side, safe cracking, um, doing store robberies, car theft. And his sister swears that um, had the police left him alone, he never would have ended up the way that he did. Because she said every legit job he had, and some of them he really loved, he would end up getting fired from because anytime a, a crime was committed nearby, the police would show up at his job and question him. Obviously, because he was doing shit all the time. He was a bad kid. So they would show up at his work, start questioning him, and the bosses would get over it. They would be like, we don't want the police in our in our business all the time. Yeah. So you got to go. So they don't come here anymore. So that was kind of the one thing against him. I mean, not that he didn't make these choices that led to these consequences, but he did try and have like a real job at one point. The, the pair met in January of 1930 while Bonnie was staying at a girlfriend's house in West Dallas. The girl, who had wanted to be a poet and an actress, met the man who would lead her life in an entirely different direction. The meeting between Bonnie and Clyde at her friend's house was like love at first sight. Emma Parker, Bonnie's mom, thought Clyde, and this is a quote, a likable boy, very handsome, with his dark wavy hair and dancing brown eyes. He had what they call charm. She may have started out liking him, but didn't so much in the end. Clyde's sister Nell described Bonnie as this. She was an adorable little thing, more like a doll than a girl. She had yellow hair that kinked all over her head like a baby's, the loveliest skin I've ever seen without a blemish on it, a regular cupid bow of a mouth and blue, blue eyes. She had dimples that constantly showed when she talked, and she was so tiny. 
She was only 4 feet 10 inches tall and weighed between 85 and 90 pounds. Their romance was interrupted when Barrow was arrested by the Dallas County Sheriff's deputies for auto theft. He was a big on stealing cars, by the way. That was what he did. Barrow was sent to East Ham Prison Farm in April of 1930 at the age of 20, 21. He was 21. And I try to find a bunch of information on East Ham Prison Farm, and there isn't a lot. Like a lot of like the penitentiaries, you have like a ton of history. I didn't find a lot about East Ham Prison. In fact, no, it was so long ago that I did. I don't know if it's still there, but I think it's still there. It was a terrible place. It was horrible. It was a prison farm. So it wasn't like individual like a working farm yeah. or a working prison. Yes. But it was hard labor. It's what they would call hard labor. Mm-hmm. And it was more the picture. I saw maybe one or two pictures. It wasn't like individual cells. Like they slept in like bunk beds, like in a big giant room. Like a sleepaway camp, mm-hmm. but a prison with hardened criminals. Like the very violent, very ugly like i can't even describe it only four months into bonnie and clyde's relationship is when he went to east ham he escaped from the prison farm shortly after his incarceration using a weapon that parker had smuggled to him and then like it's so weird how frequent bank robberies were and prison escapes were in those days like everybody was always escaping from prison and then robbing a bank like it was a thing he was recaptured shortly after and was sent back to the prison this time he got 14 years hard labor. Because like when I say hard labor, I'm not just talking about the work they did. It was actually a sentence. You would get a sentence of 14 years hard labor. This is a part that I never knew about. And I thought I knew a lot about Bonnie and Clyde because I've always like read about them. He was repeatedly sexually assaulted while in prison. And I should say that as tiny, like they talk about how um, Bonnie was only four feet ten or whatever. He was really small too for a man. I think mean, he was like five, six. And was diminutive. I don't know how else to say it. He was really good looking, but he was not a big, giant man. So when he went to a prison where people were doing 14 years, 20 years life, he was probably considered, I don't want to say he was feminine, but he was little, if that makes sense. So he was very easily overpowered. He was repeatedly sexually assaulted in there by one man, one man in particular. And he retaliated by attacking and killing him with a pipe and crushed his skull. This... 21 year old had to fight basically for his life the this was considered his first murder not at the time because another inmate who was serving a life sentence knew what that man had been doing to clyde so he took the rap for killing him because he was like you know screw it i'm already doing life so what difference does it make if i you know killed someone too what are they gonna do give me another life yeah To avoid hard labor in the fields, this is how bad the hard labor was. Clyde purposely had two of his toes amputated. And no one knows, like, there's there's different stories of whether he cut off his own toes or if he had someone else do it. But what he didn't know when he cut off his toes, because cutting off his toes, he wouldn't be able to do the hard labor, which I wouldn't trust them, personally. I would think they would still make you do it. Once you healed up, you'd still, then you're, you know doing hard labor with a limp. So I don't know how that helped him. But he didn't know at the time that his mother had already successfully petitioned for his release. He was set free six days after he cut off his own toes. He was paroled from East Ham on February 2nd, 1932. And they say that this is when he turned into a hardened and bitter criminal. His sister Marie was quoted as saying, 
Something awful sure must have happened to him in prison because he wasn't the same person when he got out. She obviously was his little sister. She didn't know that he had been sexually abused. One of his fellow inmates, Ralph Foltz, said that he watched Clyde change from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake. And he was actually, Ralph Foltz was the source of information about the first murder because until many years later, they didn't know that the guy took the rap for him. Mm -hmm. Following his release from prison in 32, he initiated a criminal partnership with Ralph, embarking on a series of robberies targeting primarily stores and gas stations. Their objective, ultimately, was to steal enough um, weapons and money to have financial resources to um, raid East Town Prison. He wanted to let people out, and he wanted that the guards that had treated him so badly and didn't protect him and all that other stuff to pay the consequences of that. So they say that. There are people that say that. Clyde wasn't out to murder and kill and steal to have these things for himself. He was doing it because his ultimate goal was to attack East Town Prison. On April 19th, Bonnie Parker and Fultz were arrested during an unsuccessful burglary at a hardware store in Kaufman where they had tried to steal guns. Parker, after spending a brief period in jail, was released when the grand jury opted not to indict her. Ralph Fultz underwent trial, conviction, and incarceration, severing ties with the criminal duo. He had been with them when they did robberies. I mean, he's he had done a bunch of shit. Ralph Fultz was, we'll get to him later, but he, he after he went to jail and all the stuff, he didn't go back to being part of the borrow game. Um, Parker, while she was detained in the Kaufman County Jail, wrote poetry and reunited with Borough shortly after her release. In April, On April 30th, Barrow served as a getaway driver during a robbery in Hillsborough that ended in the death of the store owner. His name was J.N. Butcher. Despite his role at being confined to the vehicle because he was the getaway driver, Barrow, Butcher's wife identified Barrow through police photographs as one of the assailants. So now he is known as a murderer. Like that, even though he did not actually commit that mur- murder, he was driving the getaway car and no one knew about the one in prison. This, this is the first death associated with him. In August, Barrow, along with Raymond Hamilton and Ross Dyer, and Raymond comes up later too, were involved in an altercation at a country dance in Stringtown, Oklahoma. Sheriff C.J.G. Maxwell and Deputy Eugene C. Moore confronted them in the parking lot. They were in the parking lot of a dance and they were being super loud, super boisterous. They were drinking, acting out. They were confronted by the um, sheriff and the deputy. It turned into a violent gunfight. Moore succumbed to the gunfight. He was actually killed. And he was the first law enforcement killed by the Barrow gang. And then they fled in a series of stolen cars. They ended up going to the house of Bonnie's aunt, Millie Stamps, near Carlsbad, New Mexico. So they were all like in the same area. Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, all that. There, they kidnapped a deputy sheriff, which they were known for taking hostages too. They kidnapped a deputy sheriff that was making inquiries about their car, because again, stolen car. They released him unhurt. On August 30th, they ran a police road, like a roadblock, and wounded another officer. So like after his time in jail, he literally had, and, and being having jobs where he would have a legitimate, legitimate job and the police would come and he would end up getting fired and stuff. He had a thing against any kind of law enforcement. He didn't respect their lives or anything they did. They were all clumped together with the guards that allowed him to be sexually assaulted 
and um, the police that destroyed his life at having legitimate jobs. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. W.G. Jo- Jones, a longstanding acquaintance of the Burrow family, he lived in the same area since he was a kid, joined Bonnie and Clyde on Christmas Eve in 1932 at the age of 16. So, like, he sounds really young to be running around with them, but Bonnie and Clyde were just, like, 21 and 22. And they, for whatever reason, W.G. Jones, he didn't have a lot of, like, he had obviously a mom and a dad and siblings. He had a lot of siblings, I think. They're, they're still living poor. So, like, joining up with a gang is not only probably exciting for them, it's something for them to do, but it's a way out of where they're at. Yeah. So, on Christmas Day, Jones and Barrow murdered Doyle Johnson, an act carried out while stealing Johnson's vehicle in Temple. The lethal trend continued on January 6, 1933, when Barrow fatally shot a Tarrant County deputy, Malcolm Davis, during a police trap set for another criminal. The death toll now is at five murders since April, signifying, obviously, a troubling trajectory. On March 22, 1932, Clyde's brother, Buck, had received a full pardon and was released from prison. He, along with his wife, Blanche, moved in with Bonnie and Clyde. And this is like where it all starts. And I don't know how much I say about Blanche later. But Blanche married Clyde's brother, Buck. She unwillingly ended up with Bonnie and Clyde because of Buck. Clyde tried to come and convince Buck to join like in the gang. And Buck insisted he didn't want it because he was in love with Blanche. He had met Blanche, was madly in love with her, wanted to stay with her. Blanche wanted the straight and narrow. Blanche had never been in trouble before this. Well, same with Bonnie, technically, too. Bonnie had never been in trouble either. Blanche had no desire to be part of this whole crime spree. But she was in love with her husband. She would go. Plus, she was afraid if she didn't stay with him, he would make bad choices. So she unwillingly went with Buck and joined Bonnie and Clyde in Joplin, Missouri. Families members say that Blanche and Buck went to Clyde and Bonnie to try and convince them to leave their life of crime behind. That's how Buck convinced Bonnie Blanche to go was because he told her, if we go and meet up with Bonnie and Clyde, we might be able to convince them to go on the straight and narrow. So Blanche went for two reasons. She loved her husband. She didn't want him. She thought he'd make better choices if she was there. And two, she had hoped they could convince them to stop doing what they were doing. Clearly, it didn't work. During their stay, the group was really boisterous and played alcohol-infused card games that stretched late into the night, drawing a ton of attention to themselves in an otherwise quiet neighborhood. Blanche recounted the group's routine of purchasing a case of beer daily. The men in the apartment exhibited a pattern of noisy comings and goings at all hours. They were already being noisy. They were being obnoxious in a neighborhood that really wasn't like used to that type of thing. He accidentally discharged his Browning automatic rifle while he was cleaning it. So then now people think people are starting to complain about them. Basically that a police assembled a five man force in two cars on April 13th to confront what they assumed were bootleggers. They didn't know that it was Bonnie and Clyde. And by then it's not like how news spreads now. Like, Oh, Clyde Burrow has murdered five people already. The news wasn't that quick and they didn't always determine quickly who committed the murder, if that makes sense. So they didn't, the police assembled this five man force to go confront them. They didn't know they were going to confront Bonnie and Clyde, the murderers. They thought they were going to confront bootleggers. 
The Barrow brothers and Jones, obviously knowing who they were, didn't know that they were just going after bootleggers. They thought they were going after them. And they opened fire, killing Henry, a detective, Henry McGinnis, outright, and fatally wounding a constable, J.W. Harriman. Barrow opened fire with his automatic as the others fled, forcing Highway Patrol Sergeant G.B. Collar to duck behind a large oak tree. The 30 caliber bullets from the gun struck the tree and forced wood splinters into the sergeant's face. Parker got to the car with others and they pulled Blanche in. And Blanche had a little dog named Snowball. And this is a woman who hadn't been in trouble before other than she married a man who went to prison. She only cared that her dog got out when the shooting started. So she started running down the street in the other direction, chasing her dog. And they're running from gunshots because they shot at the police. The police started shooting back. And I feel like they were less discriminant than they are now. Like now they would like evacuate the building first and all that stuff. Back then they just, you know, confronted them and gunfire broke out. Yeah. They took off in the car. They grabbed Blanche from the street, like pulled her into the car. The surviving officers later testified that they had fired only 14 rounds in the conflict. One hit Jones on the side. One struck Clyde, but was deflected, get this, by his suit button. So... Like they're shot, like he he lit, it could have ended right there had they shot Clyde and it would have been over. Mm-hmm. But they shot him and his suit button deflected it. One grazed back after ricocheting off the wall. So like they're running from the police in the middle of a gunfight. I don't. Is it called luck that they survived as many times as they did? I don't know. I think so. The group escaped the police at Joplin, but left behind most of their possessions at the apartment. And this is a really interesting thing including Buck, he had parole papers, so he left those behind. A large arsenal of weapons. This is where the public really gets to know Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie had left behind a handwritten poem and a camera with several rolls of undeveloped film. These are the most famous photos of Bonnie and Clyde. In the undeveloped film, there are pictures in the Joplin Globe published this and it was picked up nationwide. In those photos, there are pictures of Bonnie, Clyde, and Jones posing and pointing, pointing weapons at another at each other. The most famous photos of Bonnie and Clyde are the ones that you see first when you Google their images. The Globe published the photos of Bonnie's poem, including a photo of her clenching a cigar in her teeth and a pistol in her hand. No one knows to this day if Bonnie ever shot anyone. They assume she did because of the press in all the photos, but in the photos, they were literally, they were, they were young. He, Clyde, JD was 16, 17. Bonnie and Clyde were 20, 21, 22. And they had time on their hands. So with a probably stolen camera, as a matter of fact, they just posed for a bunch of pictures. There's pictures of Bonnie pointing a gun at Clyde. There's a one where she puts her foot on the back of a bumper and she's like cradling a gun with a cigar in her mouth. And that's how everyone always says that she favored big black cigars. It was only for that photo. Yeah. She actually didn't like the idea that people believe she smoked cigars. But there's so many conflicting opinions of Bonnie. I tend to read, I tend to believe Blanche more. Because Blanche wrote an entire book about her time with Bonnie and Clyde. And she said that Bonnie drank way too much. She was considered a drunk. She was mouthy. She was sassy. And um, she was party girl. So she probably did smoke, but she didn't have a lot of 
maturity about her. She was, she was out for a good time. She was with a man she loved and he was tough. She was attracted to the fact that he was a, a bad guy kind of thing. You know what I mean? And it's funny that those pictures, those pictures are what made the public start following, start following them. They, she was tiny. They were good looking. All three of them. JD was totally good looking. Like even in, by today's standards, he would be considered very good looking. Clyde was good looking. Bonnie was adorable. People fell in love with them falling in love. And the fact that they were good looking people, you know, we're a shallow nation. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is when people started following their exploits and seeing them as a current day Robin Hood steal from the rich and technically they kept it all to themselves. The thing they were doing more thing is they were doing more killing than they were stealing in their first murder of the jewelry store owner. They only got away with $40. They killed the jewelry store owner over $40. I mean, the equivalent of that would be like $800 today. But they killed a man for... Eight, what? Like, they weren't known for doing really well on their robberies. They were more known for their murders. The gang didn't hesitate to kill anyone who they believed was an obstacle, whether it was a store clerk or law enforcement. They also were just as likely to take people against their will and release them without hurting them at all. Two of those people were H.G. Darby and Undertaker and Sophie Stone. Bonnie and Clyde took the two hostages after basically hijacking Darby's car in Louisiana. Though Bonnie and Clyde were initially rough with their new captives, they soon softened. They dropped the frightened pair off in Arkansas, but not before Clyde offered them $5 for their trouble. And one story said, invited the Undertaker to embalm him when he passed. Other stories I read, I actually read the account of Darby and... Sophie Darby was having lunch at a boarding house. He heard his car start. He went running out and saw Clyde. And I don't know who it might've been WD taking off of his car. So he started yelling. Sophie had a car. They jumped in her car. They started following who they thought were just people who young people who stole their car. They had no idea it was Bonnie and Clyde. They chased the car got stuck or something. They got stuck or turned around and right behind them was Buck and someone else. So Buck like stopped them from getting away from following the car. And that's how they ended up being kidnapped. So Bonnie and Clyde put them in their car. And the story goes that Clyde invited the undertaker to embalm him when he passed. But the other story is that Bonnie actually convinced them to be nice to them, to treat them kindly, maybe because there's another girl there. And when she found out he was an undertaker, she laughingly said, well, we're going to die at some point, so maybe you can embalm me. It ends up being true. So the story of Bonnie and Clyde continues next week with part two. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode, links to our Patreon page, and all of our social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. Remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. Clover gives you the power to run a smarter, faster restaurant. See everything in real time with the Kitchen Display System. 
streamline takeout and delivery with online ordering. With the right tech, quick service is getting even quicker. Clover, accept payments, run your business, and sell more. For a limited time only, visit Clover.com to get a $450 statement credit on qualified hardware purchases. That's www.clover.com. We got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.